Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of Rheumatic and Musculoskeletal Disease Open Podcast. My name is Javier Rodriguez Carrio and I'm a social media advisor for ARD and RMD Open and assistant professor of immunology at the University of Oviedo in Spain. Today I'm here with Dr. Tu Castro from the University of Aarhus and Silkborg uh, Hospital in Denmark. Tu is the first author of the viewpoint entitled Waiting for Jack Inhibitor Safety Data, published in Around the Open early this year. So Tu, welcome to this podcast and thank you very much for sharing your results with us. Can you please introduce uh, yourself and tell us a little bit about your research interest first? Thank you, Javier. Very happy to be on the show. Yeah, so my name is uh, Tu Kraustrup. I'm a part-time rheumatology fellow and part-time associate professor at the Department of Biomedicine at Aarhus University in Denmark. Um, I usually say that uh, I try to improve health of patients with immune-mediated inflammatory diseases by doing lots of different things. So both basic research, drug development, biomarker studies, but also clinical research, development of treatment guidelines, um, for sure also teaching medical students, young doctors, and Uh, in general, just shared decision-making in daily clinical practice. So uh, a long sentence and perhaps uh, also says that I'm, I'm easily persuaded into doing stuff that I find interesting. Thank you very much, Stu. I'm sure this broad expertise will help us to answer all these questions about this interesting topic. So at the very beginning, let's introduce JAK inhibitors for our broad community. What is the role of these drugs in the treatment of rheumatoid arthritis and other rheumatic and musculoskeletal diseases? Well, in general, um, JAK inhibitors sort of share features of, of both our conventional synthetic drugs, but also our biologics. So similar to the conventional DMATs, because they are small molecule, synthetic compounds uh, administered orally uh, as a pill, and they work intracellularly. They also share pharmacokinetic properties with the conventional uh, drugs because they are degraded to some extent by the liver and uh, to some extent excreted by the kidneys. Uh, however, they are also related to the biologics uh, because they were developed by first identifying the mode of action and then running the clinical trials. So we often talk about jacket inhibitors sort of in the same way as the biologics because the clinical trials programs were sort of conducted very similar to any biological drug and they, they are also still rather expensive in most countries. And this mode of action that was identified is basically blocking intracellular signaling. And this is signaling from approximately 50 different cytokines, including well-known cytokines as R6, Uh, IL-12, IL-23, but importantly also um, uh, not the signaling from other important cytokines such as TNF, um, IL-1 and, and IL-17. They have an important role already. They're approved uh, for RA, PSA, SPA, JIA, inflammatory bowel disease, uh, also atopic dermatitis. Um, and there was a session at the EULA Congress where Professor Peter Nash covered I think it was more than 250 ongoing trials across many different uh, diseases. So, so JAK inhibitors are already important, but but will also the the role will only increase. I think. Thanks too. Uh, I think we now have uh, the good picture, the broad picture about the mode of action and the diseases where JAK inhibitors are making a, an impact. So. Your study was prompted by the warning concerning JAK inhibitor safety after the oral surveillance study. So can you please briefly comment what has this study shown 
for this topic? Yeah, so the oral surveillance study uh, was a safety endpoint study, and it was comparing tofacitinib and TNF inhibitors. I will start by saying that already in 2019, tofacitinib 10mg twice daily was shown to increase the risk of VTA. So this dose was stopped and patients were changed to the 5mg twice daily. So therefore, the relevant question from the oral surveillance study is really whether safety outcomes differ between the 5mg twice daily dose versus TNF inhibitors. And this question is, is answered quite easily because tofacitinib 5mg twice daily was indeed associated with both venous thromboembolisms, VTE, uh, major adverse cardiac events, MACE, and uh, also malignancies. So, so that, is, that is sort of the very brief uh, description. I think these findings, to some extent, uh, were maybe expected, or are these findings different, or do they differ a lot compared to other clinical trials or other meta-analyses that have been previously published? That that's a very um, good question. You you don't always have the full overview of, of what information FDA and EMA and other regulatory uh, agencies really get. But but it it's it's um, important to know that the oral surveillance study was mandated by the FDA. So so there must have been some signals from the RCTs and from the trial programs. However, the findings from the oral surveillance are very much in contrast to what are actually the findings in the long-term extension studies from the phase three and four trials, because here we, we still do not really see these uh, signals. Uh, we will get back to the sort of um, the baseline characteristics of the, the patients for sure, because that, that, that could be the explanation. Okay. So in the oral surveillance study, the, the JAK inhibitors that was tested was tofacitinib, and tofacitinib treatment was found to be non-inferior to TNF-alpha inhibitors. So then someone from our audience may think, why to choose JAK inhibitors in this framework over TNF-alpha inhibitors? What's, what could be the reason? What can be the advantage? Yeah, so the situations where there are some benefits or clear benefits from a JAK inhibitor compared with a TNF inhibitor could be the oral dosing, like in needle phobia. It could also be issues with non-adherence to intermittent dosing. It could also be loss of efficacy from anti-drug antibodies. Um, and especially if it's uh, compared with the TNF inhibitors, it could be patients with heart failure. We also know for sure that the JAK inhibitors have proven better efficacy, uh, and especially in, uh, in monotherapy. However, I think the practice of the individual rheumatologist will be very different in, in different countries. So the FDA has directly stated now that JAK inhibitors should be reserved for patients who have had an inadequate response or intolerance to one or more TNF blockers. And this is in somewhat contrast to the new EULA recommendations that state that that JAK inhibitors can indeed be used before any other biologic after proper risk assessment. And looking maybe five years ahead, I think everybody is, is very curious about how their national healthcare system will adjust guidelines when the JAK inhibitors go off patent and potentially will be as cheap as methotrexate. Okay, now let's go back to the oral surveillance study. The next question can be, among the inclusion criteria, an age of more than 50 years old and an additional traditional cardiovascular risk factors were mandatory for the patient to enter. So may these criteria have influenced the results obtained in this study? And additionally, are 
this patient's profile representative of what we see in the clinics in our real-world populations, or they may not be fully comparable to our routine clinical care? What do you think? Mm. As a rheumatologist with, with a clear interest in pharmacology, I'm, I'm very happy to see studies like the oral surveillance. Um, these patients are sort of always left out of the initial clinical trial programs. So yes, this study is very important to show how JAK inhibitors are, are tolerated in the most vulnerable patients that, that are indeed part of everyday clinical practice. And related to the to the findings or to the proposals in your viewpoint, in your viewpoint, you propose to perform a research stratification for tailoring therapy. Can you please introduce this topic? Uh, which clinical parameters would be advisable to include in this new tool? Yeah, so, so tailoring therapy will always be based on shared decision-making uh, with the patient. And um, the question is then really what, what risk factors to include and what factors to sort of rank highest and that's still based on unlimited data, I will say, but we tried to make an illustration and uh, that's that's difficult to show in a in a podcast, but but I think most rheumatologists are sort of used to thinking about these risk factors. So um, what, what we have done is really to include just the risk factors for cancer, the risk factors for BTE and the risk factors for MACE that we all know from clinical practice. So you can think about the factors that you consider for, for cardiovascular disease, when prescribing NSAIDs. Uh, you can set, think about the risk factors for, for BTE that you uh, at least once were, uh, could tell your, your patient when you prescribe contraceptive medication, perhaps as, as part of uh, training in rotation in general practice. And also you, you see patients maybe on a daily basis that come to you with unattended weight loss and you think about all the risk factors that could say that this could be cancer. So. Um, what we did in the in the paper is really just to try and, and make it more visual with, with the illustration. Yes, indeed. And I think an important point of the viewpoint is uh, that the shared decision process is still at the, at the center of the process itself. So how can we discuss uh, the recommendation of JAK inhibitors or the JAK inhibitor risks regarding cardiovascular events or VTE with patients that... Uh, they know that half a disease that is intrinsically related to uh, cardiovascular risk excess. How can we present this information? What would be your, your counseling here? Indeed, it will depend on the clinical situation, I think. So if you have a patient, let's say 35 years old and, and without any risk factors uh, that we just talked about, then, then I'm not sure that you would need to discuss it to a large extent. Uh, however, if, if the patient is in risk of developing cardiovascular disease, then the patient needs to be able to make a decision based on appropriate amount of information for sure. I will just mention two things here. First, we need to also mention that inflammatory disease activity itself is associated with increased risk of both VTE, maize, and cancer, uh, actually. And, and secondly, um, it's also important to acknowledge that the risk with with, with drugs with sort of other mode of action uh, and not TNF inhibitors um, like metotrexate, IL-6 receptor inhibitors, abatacips and rituximab, we, we don't really know what the risk is here. Uh, all surveillance sort of only informs us about JAK inhibitors versus uh, TNF inhibitors. 
at this point, uh, and as you introduce yourself, I'm going to take uh, advantage of your expertise also in basic and, and translational science. Uh, what do we know exactly about the underlying mechanisms of this event? How can the JAK inhibitors relate uh, from a mechanistic point of view to MACE or to VTE? What do you think? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. So I can mention some situations where we at least think we know uh, what is going on. Uh, so some side effects are specific to only some of the targeted drugs. Uh, for instance, we know that it's difficult to vaccinate when you're on rituximab, and that makes perfect sense because we're depleting all the B cells. And another good example is, is IL-17 inhibitors, where we see um, that uh, drugs such as segokinumab and ixikizumab are associated with mucocutaneous candidiasis. And this is also clear. We know from patients that have these uh, rare inborn errors in IL-17 pathways, they have severe mucocutaneous candidiasis um, problems. And the, the final example I will use is now we actually also know that, that if we inhibit specifically type 1 interference with any furumab, this increases the risk of hepatostar. Um, so, so these are sort of target-related side effects seen with, with other target, targeted DMARs that um, can be used to sort of understand the side effects seen with the JAK inhibitors because now we see that JAK inhibition has been associated with increased risk of uh, hepatostar and this increased risk is likely caused by the effect of JAK inhibition on, on downstream signaling from the type 1 uh, interferons. However, so back to your question, so, so um, the mechanism behind the potential risk of VTE, maize and cancer are still very unclear. Um, I'm not even sure that we will be able to get detailed understanding unless we get like lots of safety studies with other JAK inhibitors that are specific in one way or the other. And even still, VTE, maize and cancer are just very complex diseases and, and likely not driven by just one or, or two cytokines or one or two JAK uh, molecules. Yeah, I do agree with your point. Maybe this is a very complex processes that are not related just to one cytokine or maybe more uh, by the small effect of several cytokines and maybe this, this relates because the, the JAK inhibitor is something that affects to more than one mediator here. Uh, in your opinion, what could be the big learning point from this situation? We are facing a, a new problem, a new situation. So should we change the way we appraise efficacy and safety in randomized clinical trials in rheumatology? Should we radically change the treatment tailoring process in our field? What would be your idea? To be honest, I, I believe rheumatologists are actually doing an excellent job every day. RMDs are difficult diseases to manage. Uh, rheumatologists are always eager to learn and, and to do studies. But for sure, I, I think these new safety signals about the JAK inhibitors, and I will also may mention like the, the increased risk of COVID-19 and lack of vaccine efficacy with rituximab and like safety signals like, like these, safety data like these, uh, it really emphasizes that, that side effects and special warnings uh, will be increasingly important in treatment algorithms. Okay, so we're coming to the end of this podcast. So could you like to add something at the end of, of this podcast? I, I plan to give a tribute to um, the, the last author of our viewpoint, David Liu, who sort of managed to really improve my one sentence full stop writing style um, with his uh, native Australian? So, so if if it's okay, I will uh, I will cite sort of the last part that was written by David. So, uh, and I'm quoting: 
unlike the characters in the play Waiting for Godot, who wait so long that they plan their suicide to escape their predicament, rheumatologists will have to say, let us do something, it is safer. As we have done in the past and will do in the future, the optimal treatment strategy will have to be tailored based on individual patient risk factors and preferences in a shared decision process. So I think that's an important quote to put uh, the final note of this of this podcast. Uh, Dr. Krastrup, uh, thank you very much uh, for your time and for contributing to this series of podcasts, providing further insight into this topic and sharing your, your viewpoint with us. And also I would like to thank uh, to all the community joining this series of podcasts. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. And if you would like to read the full paper, please visit the website rmdopen.bmg.com and stay tuned for upcoming podcasts by our team. Thank you very much. Thank you.